Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. I'm here today with Chris again. We had some technical difficulties last week. So we'll start today by meditating together. I guess I'll guide a little bit in the beginning, but it's an opportunity to let people come in and if people have questions, they can start to post questions right away. If you don't have questions, just sit and meditate with me. For those of you who have questions, feel free to post them. So with mindfulness meditation, we shift our perspective away from concepts. What does that mean? It means don't focus on the things around you and inside of you. Things like uh, people making noise or things making noise or the chair you're sitting on or your body. Don't focus on the problems in your life, the mem things you remember in the, in the past, issues or traumas in the past. Don't worry about, don't focus on the things you have to do in the future. But don't ignore any of these. It just change your perspective. With all of the things in your life right now, past, present, or future, try and see the experiences behind them, the experiences that trigger your perception of them. When you hear a person talking, focus on the sound, the experience of hearing. When you feel pain, focus on the pain. Don't focus on the body. Focus on the experience of the pain, the tension in your back and the pressure on the chair that you're sitting on. The heat and the cold in the room. Focus on the sound of my voice, the hearing. Focus on the thinking not the thing you're thinking about, but the thinking itself as an experience. Focus on the emotions. So we don't ignore anything. We just focus on what's real about it, what's experiential about it. To begin, we encourage people to focus on the stomach. Close your eyes and when the stomach rises, just say to yourself, rising. When it falls, falling. Rising. Falling. By saying the word to yourself, you're reminding yourself of the experience, which, make, which uh, facilitates the shift to experiential awareness. 
takes your mind away from the distraction of concepts and things and entities, people, places, and so on. Things. And just watch your stomach rising and falling. And when you say rising, your focus is on the experience. And that's an experience that comes and goes. Rising is just a name for it. You can say expanding, contracting, if you want. And then apply the same technique to everything else that you experience. When you feel pain, focus on the pain, say pain, pain. When you have thoughts, focus on them just as thoughts, say thinking, thinking. When you have emotions, focus on them. Any kind of liking or disliking, sadness, boredom, fear, depression, anger, frustration. Just find a word for the experience and use that to keep yourself focused on the experience itself. Liking, liking, or disliking, disliking. Repeat it like a mantra to keep yourself fixed and focused on the experience and once it's gone go back again to the rising and falling of the stomach If meditation makes you feel calm, focus on the calm feeling. Say to yourself, calm, calm. Don't get attached to the calm feeling because it's not particularly stable. It'll come and go. If you feel restless, focus on that. Restless, restless, worried, agitated. If you feel tired, say tired, tired. Most important is that you stay present, stay focused on whatever it is that you're experiencing. When there's nothing else, just go back to the stomach.
Okay. So we can continue to be mindful together, but at this point I'll open it up to anyone who has any questions about the practice. If you don't have questions, we just continue to be mindful. Once you've asked your question, just go back to being mindful and present. We do have questions, Pante. So let's begin. Can you please elaborate on the mechanism of how seeing clearly cultivates wisdom? I'm not trying to over-intellectualize. I just feel like I'm missing this part of the technique. Well, I can give you a simple answer and I can give you the long answer. But the simple answer, for the simple answer, let's think about what it means to not have wisdom. Because we don't have this thing that we're looking for, that you are not clear about yet, because of not having that thing, the most important result is that you suffer. You create your own suffering. You act in ways that are that cause problems for you. You cultivate bad habits. We hurt ourselves, we hurt others. We have fear, because fear of the unknown. We have judgments, impartialities, addictions, aversions, stress and worry. So the short answer is that seeing clearly helps you or lets you see what you're doing to yourself. The, the key reason why seeing leads to wisdom is because our our suffering is caused by blindness and so what we call wisdom is a bit misleading but but as a word right because what we call wisdom just means knowing, knowing fully, knowing perfectly, kind of. And so we call it wisdom because it's the state of not making mistakes. It's the state of acting and speaking, reacting to experiences in the right way. So how is it that you manage to act and speak and react to your experiences in the right way? It's because you see your experiences clearly for what they are. You don't have to fix your problems or learn how to react to specific situations. You just have to see more clearly about any situation that you're in, to see the reality of it on an experiential level. And the short answer is that that changes or changes your, your, your reactions and facilitates proper responses. And that looks like wisdom. That when we, when we look at that, either on our own, seeing how we're now 
reacting with clarity because we see things as they are uh, or whether we look at someone else and appear, wow, that person is very wise. And, and so there kind of comes about this problematic perception or, or conception that there must be some realization that they had or some theory, some philosophy. Because our, own, our, our ordinary understanding of wisdom is like that, right? You've read a lot of books or maybe you've uh, had some epiphany or something like that. But the truth is the reason why you act wisely or, or react wisely is because you see things clearly, that we're only making mistakes because of our uh, blindness and, and distorted perceptions of liking and disliking and so on. Well, that was the short answer. Um, the longer answer is it, it, it goes in stages. So that clarity, uh, it, it isn't simply a wiping off of dust. The practice is kind of like a wiping off of dust. If you have a lens and you, you clean the lens, the practice is pretty simple, right? It's not a complicated technique. But the progress, what the changes that you undergo that come from the clarity, that change the way you look at things and allow you to see things in what we would say clearly, is a long... Is a, not long, but a yeah, a complex process. So, for example, to start with, the first thing that happens as you start to clean and start to create this clarity is you start to see what's real and what's not real. You make this shift in perspective from seeing things to seeing experiences. So you start to see what, what's real is, is the physical and mental aspects of experience. There's physical aspects, like uh, if someone pokes you, you feel that poke. That feeling is a, a physical. There's a physical aspect. And then there's the mind which is aware of it. And the mind which is aware of it can be aware of the same experience in many different ways. So you see that the mind is one thing and the, the physical is another. There are thoughts that are disconnected from the body and that sort of thing. But there is physical and mental. Like when you see, it requires the light. So there is a physical aspect. But mainly that there are experiences. And there's no things like a person or a, a, a stomach, for example, or a leg or a foot walking. There's only the experiences, the feelings that arise and see the, the many types of experience. Then you start to see how they work together. That's the first step. The next step is you see, oh, physical and mental work and, and have relationships with each other. There's cause and there's effect. And you start to see, most importantly, the, the positive and the negative effects of positive and negative causes. So if you get angry, you see what the result of that is. If you want something, you see what the result of that is. If you're worried or afraid or so on. If you're mindful, you start to see how your interaction with reality has has consequences. And that's uh, starting to see more clearly. Then you start to see um, what the, the, you start to make a basic realization that it's not so much deciding what to do 
as it is about not reacting and so you start to see why things are not worth reacting you see that start to see the three characteristics you see that the main problem is not about not knowing what to do it's about not seeing clearly and, and and not seeing the three characteristics so you start to see the three characteristics you realize that you're wrong about many things as being stable and and it's it's not proper for you to to perceive things as stable you get upset and shocked when they disappear or satisfying saying oh this is great this thing is wonderful and then it changes or it's gone or then you, your mind changes and you don't like it and you realize nothing can satisfy us because it's impermanent and you see non-self you see that you can't control these things and they have no inherent self to control they're momentary arising and based on causes and conditions so those are the three characteristics you start to see that and that sort of sets the theme for the rest of it you're not going to see any or any realizations off of that main theme of the three characteristics but then it's just about deepening your understanding of the three characteristics your 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 perception of things is not worth being worth clinging to yeah you'll see the the cessation of everything that nothing is a stable secure refuge because it's all going to disappear you see that clinging to it is dangerous because that's where suffering comes from when you don't get what you want or when you get what you don't want you see the disadvantages of clinging you, you start and then you start to give up clinging you start to become less excited less attracted and slowly slowly your mind starts to change until you want to be free and you strive to be free and you finally are free from bias and your mind becomes clear and equanimous and you're able to finally see things just for what they are and you root out all your misperceptions that's what wisdom looks like it's hard to really pinpoint any one thing that you could call wisdom because it's really just about seeing clearly and the results of seeing clearly that change the way you look at things. When my job makes me anxious, it is hard to be mindful of this feeling while meditating. I find it unclear and difficult to focus on. Can I help myself see my anxiety more clearly? Right. Well, when you know that you're feeling anxious, just note anxious. And maybe what you're experiencing, I would suggest, is the cessation of the anxiety. Consider that most of what we call anxiety is, is physical. It's not actually anxiety, but anxiety causes physical reactions, physical phenomena, physical experiences. So when you say anxious and then you can't find it, that's because it's already gone. Uh, saying to yourself anxious should should remove the anxiety now it might come right back but anytime it comes back worry or anxiety just note it again and then again it'll be gone so i have always said to that anxiety is kind of an, a, a good example of how the mindfulness works to help you see what's really going on because you can be mindful of the physical sensations which are not actual anxiety just note uh, tense tense or 
feel something in the stomach feeling, feeling if the heart's beating fast, same thing, just say feeling, feeling. If you're thinking about it, say thinking. Is there an auditory meditation? Listening to every little detail around me makes me feel present and my thinking goes away. Well, there are many kinds of meditation. Uh, I don't really have a good answer for you because we only have one type of meditation. But your 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 basic idea that you're presenting is that you you are interested in auditory meditation because that sort of meditation seems like it would make you feel present and make your thinking go away. Well, feeling present can be, I mean, that sounds good, but making your thinking go away isn't what we're aiming for. We're aiming to understand our experiences, and so thinking is part of that. When you're thinking, we try to just remind ourselves thinking, not to make it go away. And feeling present is... As I said, it sounds good, but it's usually just a feeling of calm or, or uh, peace or that sort of thing. And you should note that feeling if you feel focused. It's usually just a feeling of calm, and you should note that. When I note an emotion, is it a must to note the exact emotion one feels like liking or hating, etc.? All this time, I've just been noting feeling without specifying the type of feeling. Yeah, that's not very useful to just note feeling because, as you as you can guess, it's it's not really very accurate. Um, it's not it's not totally improper, but it's not as helpful as saying liking or disliking. Feeling we normally reserve that for a a feeling that you can't describe or you can't pin down as being one or another but usually be a, a neutral a, a physical feeling when you feel tension or well tension you might say tense but when you feel say the um the chair or the the floor that you're sitting on um, when you feel a, a heart beating or as i said or some feeling in the stomach or that sort of thing How can I rise above my fear of flying? I am flying from Toronto to British Columbia in November, and I am very nervous. How can I use meditation to overcome this fear? Well, I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, but that's the usual answer that I'll give. Consider reading the booklet. It um, We'll give you an introduction to the type of meditation that we practice. Maybe you were here for the beginning of the session. You heard me already guide you a little bit in it. But we don't precisely rise above things. We just try and see them as they are. Really, fear of flying is, is it will give you an incredible insight into how powerful this meditation is. But you have to appreciate that you're not trying to get rid of the fear. The fear isn't actually the problem. The problem is your reifying of the fear every moment, and that's habitual. So we try to change that habit. Instead, to try to see fear just as fear. When you're afraid, just say to yourself, afraid, afraid, afraid. And just keep saying that. As long as, when you're not afraid, go back to noting, I would say, the stomach rising and falling. I helped a woman on, I was on a plane from, I 
given this story before, but on a plane from one of the prairie provinces, I think. I don't remember where I was coming to or going from, but just remember it was on the prairies in Canada. And uh, she was sitting beside, she was gripping the uh, the seat handles, right? And I said to her, I said, okay, I'll just take that as your object of meditation. We had been talking on through the flight and I'd been explaining to her a little bit about the technique. And I said, okay, just say to yourself, afraid, afraid. And then when it's gone, go back to rising and noting everything. And I did just a simple guided meditation. When we landed, she turned to me and she said, that's the first time in my life. She was looked to be in her maybe 40s, I don't know. First time in my life that we've landed and I wasn't afraid, landed in an airplane. She was quite impressed. It's quite impressive. I am sometimes oversensitive to the suffering of others. Is there an approach I should use for this experience? Yep. If you haven't read our booklet, consider reading the booklet. Again, if, if you've read the booklet, then the next step would be to maybe consider doing an at-home meditation course. I mean, the thing is, I don't have specific answers to these questions because the answer is not specific. These are these are all just examples of uh, reacting and reacting improperly. So by practicing mindfulness, you start to see clearly and you don't react improperly. You start to put things in context and in perspective, see them as they are and what, what your reactions are doing to you and what are good reactions, what are bad reactions, etc. Is something being the most prominent conceptual? Technically, nothing is the most prominent because only one thing can be experienced at once, right? Maybe I overthink this. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to dismiss it by saying you overthink it, but what, what, what's the use of the question, right? Um, the thing is, you have perceptions of things as being prominent, uh, and, and it often has to do with how... How, how strong the reaction to them is, that sort of thing. And so that's why you would pick that as the prominent one. But, you know, if it's because you're not sure which one to pick, the point is that don't worry about it, just pick one. And by saying the most prominent, it makes you pick the one that is most glaring to you, most uh, present to you. Is it possible for an experienced meditator to spend at least one minute with no mental noise or thoughts? It wouldn't be of any interest whether you could or not. That would just be another experience. So I guess the point of this question might be to ask, uh, whether whether you, whether it's whether you can hope to find that experience, and you can hope to find that experience, but that's not the point. That's not going to help you become free from suffering because it doesn't lead to seeing clearly.
and I use the note overwhelmed, regardless of if I'm upset about the overwhelming feeling or not. Sometimes there's a tinge of disliking, others it feels like I'm overwhelmed in the sense a computer is. That's fine. Look, I mean, the, the words aren't that important. If it, if it appears to you as overwhelmed, you're just trying to be objective about that. You might want to be a little more specific, like if that that might that kind of overwhelmed might just be tired might just be stressed that sort of thing what what is it actually that you're feeling overwhelmed i would only use if there's just too much and you're just not able to be mindful it's a way of sort of short circuiting that and circumventing all that and saying ah i can too be mindful i'll just be mindful overwhelmed overwhelmed Is it good to designate notings for certain experiences so you don't have to think about it in the moment? Or is that antithetical to noting things as they strike you? Or is it too obsessive? Hmm, I think you might be... Oh, I see what you're talking about. Um, I mean, It's not quite like that. It sounds like you're kind of overthinking things. And and it's kind not just overthinking. It's more like trying to. Uh, it's like how we do any how we approach any activity, finding shortcuts, uh, making strategies. And why do we do that? It's to make it easier. So I and I think that's that's blunt bluntly put. What it is, it's about trying to make it easier. Now, normally that's important in work, but for meditation, we actually don't want to make it easier, and that's not going to help you strategies, shortcuts, whatever. Because you're developing the skill of doing it. It's the skill that we're interested in. The skill of being able to see things as they are. So if if you have to designate something in advance so you don't have to think about it, it means you're not skilled enough to recognize something immediately for what it is. And you're not skilled enough to have that perception of it as uh, you know, what is this? So, practice. The only answer is to practice until you are. If you have to stop and think about it, you should then note thinking, most likely. Kanasukha vipasaka a yogi who performs vipassana only, attain the phala, the fruition? How is the consciousness process of it? Phala, not phala. I apologize. Phala means fruit. Um, so, in order to enter into cessation you need to see impermanent suffering or non-self those are the three gates to enlightenment so there'll be a moment it's called anulomanyana where the mind sees clearly one of the three characteristics for that to arise you can't be practicing the samatha jhanas anyway you have to be focused on ultimate reality and you have to see it arising and ceasing so 
it's not that isn't again the jhanas is so hard to talk about but if you're using techno technical terms like sukha vipassaka then we have to be talking in a very specific framework and you're not in the jhanas as described by that specific framework you're out of the jhanas you have to be because those jhanas can are focused on a concept and they cannot see impermanent suffering and non-self so the short answer then is that the process of attaining pala is going to be the same no matter whether you experience the jhanas previously or not can the sukha vipassaka do that obviously that yes that's what the word sukha vipassaka is used for someone who has attained enlightenment without attaining the samatha jhana so how is the consciousness process it's anulomanyana followed by technically gotrabunyana which isn't an actual consciousness i don't think and then there's makanyana and palanyana so if you're if you're just asking about palasamapati after someone is a sotapanna can they experience palasamapati yes of course it would be it's the same thought process it's the same process as the first attainment through maga and pala except there's no maga and that's just technical because of course there isn't maga because you've already destroyed the defilements maga and pala are only different because for maga it destroys the defilements and the next moments can't destroy the defilements because they're already gone so they're called pala but after you've experienced that once if you enter into that experience again then it's all called pala so it's called pala samapati technical question that someone who might who hasn't been familiar with these things might not understand but i hope that's what you were looking for how to deal with negative and hurting people so here's where we try to set ourselves in the experiential side of things people don't exist in that perspective in that perspective there's only experiences so you're not dealing with people you're dealing with your reactions to the experiences that are presented to you as a result of interacting with those people right? your your experience is not of people it's of, of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking that's the truth and so focusing on that truth on that reality frees you from all of the issues of someone being negative someone being hurtful that sort of thing you don't have to deal with that you can understand that they're hurtful but that isn't how you perceive it you perceive it as the experiences the sound hitting your ear and the processing of the sound as words and so on read our booklet sorry just to read the booklet try and practice that way you'll help it'll you'll see it'll help because you'll stop trying to deal with people and you'll start dealing with experiences i want to be happy is this a realistic wish yes it's the best wish it's important the important foot, uh, footnote or qualifier is happy might not quite be what you think it is and so that's not a, that's not going to be a problem for you but the problem will be your expectations so if you expect to feel pleasure all the time 
then you're going to be disappointed and you you you'll you'll be it'll keep you from actually being happy because you'll always crave for that pleasure pleasure is something you can crave but happiness is not happiness looks like freedom from suffering so if it were to be a feeling then you could never really be happy it just be unsatisfying because it would come and it would go and be more and more addicted to it the more you got it that sort of thing but can you be happy how do you be happy you be content you give up wanting you have no wanting you're not wanting anything you're not wanting for anything you have everything you want because you don't want anything and then you feel truly happy and free if someone were to say to you how is that happiness how can you describe it to them but you know for yourself that you're happy you know for yourself that you've never been so happy and it's not pleasure it's not even a feeling it's just it feels like clear skies flying like a bird What is the root cause of compulsively seeking mental stimulation? Well, desire, liking and wanting. I mean, that, that isn't even quite the root cause. The root, root cause is ignorance. Yeah, so that's probably the best answer is ignorance. Why? Because Why ignorance? Because if you saw that mental stimulation for what it was, you would see that it's not worth compulsively seeking. And you would see that compulsively seeking is only causing you more stress and suffering. That's what that's what ignorance means. Being ignorant of that tr truth and being mindful would help you see that truth. How do you know which meditation objects suit you best? That's a complicated answer, and I don't, I don't not. Hmm. It's a complicated answer. I I think I will n refrain from giving you a complete answer because I don't teach a lot of the different objects of meditation. But if you're going to practice samatha meditation, then you have to know which objects suit you best. But none of those actually suit you best because eventually you have to practice mindfulness anyway. So I recommend people, our tradition will generally recommend people to practice mindfulness. And the objects of that are the four foundations of mindfulness. So those are the best objects. And there is a little bit of detail on which of those suits you best. Um, but I'm not going to go into it. All the four, you should be mindful of all four of them. Since I started practicing this meditation, my confidence regarding intimacy with women has decreased a lot. Is there a way to balance lust and spiritual progress? Lust and that's that seems like two things. What does confidence regarding intimacy have to do with lust? I mean, I guess I can kind of see it because you're or maybe by confidence you mean my Anyway, I guess I won't even touch that part because this doesn't obviously teach you confidence regarding intimacy. If anything, it teaches you to 
maybe that's what you're getting at less confidence in your intimacy and in, in that in, in the idea that intimacy is a good thing um no there's no way to balance lust and spiritual progress they're they're like a tug of war so the the way to go about it is to try and be mindful of your lust try and use lust as an object of meditation and the objects of lust as well it's not an easy process but it's practical and effective you just have to be honest with yourself and try and see clearly at what you're actually experiencing my family tends to trigger huge anxiety and worry in my mind it gives me enormous pain and confusion as i do love them dearly how can i work on this issue to help free the mind and heart Well, again, I don't mean to divert you, but please consider to read our booklet. I don't, because that's better than me trying to give you the answer. Read it, uh, start to practice it. If you're interested, take the at-home meditation course, and you'll find that you're able to build tools that help you deal with uh, experiences from your family and and worrying. My mind feels very fuzzy. I sit down to meditate, but just feel distracted. I used to have okay mindfulness. Can I ever get back to that state? Usually, these kind of reminiscings, nostalgia, are um, in and of themselves a problem. So try and focus on the wanting to get back to that state. That's really probably usually what's holding you back. Um, and, and it's usually not related to having been mindful in the past but it's about having been focused in the past that's not necessarily true you could have been quite mindful in the past and now you're not that certainly is possible but either way the reminiscing over it or wishing to go back to some theoretical state that you're now perceiving from afar or remembering from afar that that should be an object of your mindfulness itself wanting or feeling sad or upset that you're not there focus on those experiences when you feel distracted just say to yourself distracted distracted when you feel fuzzy say feeling feeling can a person want something without desiring it there's no longing for it but rather a preference for it What, do, what is wanting but desire? You say there's no longing. Well, what is longing but intense desire? Or the longing is maybe 
part of it is the result of the intense desire. So if it means you don't have intense desire, that's all you're saying, but it's still desire because that's what wanting is. They're just words. But there's only one reality that we describe as wanting or desiring. That's lobha is the Pali word. So still wanting, still desire. Should we ever structure practice towards investigating particular fetters? For instance, should a sotapanna practice differently from an anagami? No, the practice is the same. Still just the four satipatthana. You're not actively seeking out your fetter. The fetters are still in relation to ordinary experience, so it's just about focusing on your ordinary experiencing and try experience and trying to see it more clearly. Since I am on a new medication for schizophrenia, I have problems with meditation. It's harder to see clearly. Should I go back to just old medication? I can't talk to you about medication. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not legally qualified to advise you about that. So it's not a question. Um, I can't directly answer your question. Uh, I would recommend you to try and use mindfulness to focus on how you do see. So if you don't see clearly or if it's harder to see clearly, well, harder isn't a problem. Just note what you do experience. Try and remind yourself what you are experiencing whenever you have a chance. Meditation is hard anyway, with or without schizophrenia. What does the nirvana state actually feel like? If, it were, if there were feeling, it wouldn't be nirvana. That's my answer. What is it called to be content with what you have, to not desire more? Contentment. But, but um, maybe not enlightenment per se, because you can have good things and therefore your intent. Contentment no matter what you have or don't have, that's a sign of enlightenment. Content regardless of what you have. My house has lots of insects. My wife wants me to call pest control and get the house and the surrounding area to be sprayed. I would like to know if this would have a negative impact in terms of karma. You're basically calling someone knowing that what they're going to do is come and kill the insects on your behalf. So that would be killing. You could find pest control that 
could somehow uh, make the pests want to go away. That's what you should do. Investigate that. Because pest control, if they're if they're killing them, then that's not pest control. That's pest murder. Well, it's also animal murder. Pest is just a pejorative term, right? They're not pests to themselves. They don't consider themselves pests. Pest control is kind of a euphemism. Animal murder. Sentient being murderers, that's what they are. The murder squad. But there should be ways to deal with insects. Humanely. Do you think the blissful nature of deep conscious presence to be quite intoxicating and the pursuit of presence through meditation to be addictive? Well, the thing about blissful states of meditation is that they tend to be free from any kind of intoxication, any kind of desire. And so you can't technically become addicted to them, but when you leave them, you can have a, a, a wanting, a yearning for them again, and so they can be, in that sense, addictive. Just like anything. But they're much less addicting than addictive than, say, drugs or food, sex. Are marital sexual habits positive or hurtful for meditation? Does constant release of sexual energy decrease ability to focus? It's not that it decreases ability. It's not that the release of energy decreases your ability to focus. It's that the pleasure. Clouds the mind and also hides from you the unpredictable nature of reality and, and the suffering inherent reality. Because for that time, it, it appears as though life is good. The world is good. There's no problem. What's the problem? It's wonderful. Pleasure. So you, you, you lose that. And, and if you have the capacity to engage in that regularly, you can keep yourself blinded and, and clouded and, and, and seemingly happy, but actually less and less satisfied. Why do people who are married start fighting? It's not that even those who, even those who do have sex start fighting and be terrible to each other. Why? Why have they built up all that negative energy if it's so happy, if it's so good for them? It's because it's doing the opposite. It makes you more nasty, more vicious, more addicted.
There seem to be parts of my mind that are resistant to sensations arising one after the other during meditation. I feel I can't control that. Is there anything that I should do besides keep noting? I don't understand what that means. Resistant to sensations arising one after another. Does that mean by resistant you mean that don't like them? I don't quite understand. But um, not being in control isn't a problem. We're not trying to control. So if you are resistant, and by that you mean disliking, then say disliking. Or resisting the... Because you, resisting is just a... Okay, if you're resisting it, that would just be a state of mind as well. Usually disliking. But it could be stress or worry or fear or something. So you would note that. We're not trying to control. Just try and... Use the word to remind yourself what it is. When the Buddha said something to the effect of don't concern about the specifics, does that effectively mean noting broad and general? No. It means note accurately. Seeing is neither broad nor narrow, it's just seeing. The point is, don't go into the details of it. What are you seeing? What is the thing you're seeing like? Is it bright or dark or this or that? Those are the specifics. That it's not about noting broad or narrow. That's not what it means. If a doctor asked to end a patient's life by the patient due to extreme suffering and incurable illness like a cancer, would that be bad karma for the doctor to perform the duty? Yes. The desire to end one's life is not, uh, not wholesome. And so you can't use that as an excuse to exonerate yourself from the murder now it's a lot less unwholesome than killing someone who wants to live for example but you're unwholesome on both sides because they want to do it and because you're helping them do it is it going to send you to hell i don't know maybe it's hard to say it's certainly not a good thing and, and the idea if you believe it to be a good thing you start to go start to get problems if you believe to be it, it to be innocent or a good thing or that sort of thing that's out of line with the truth i mean the point is there's no benefit gained by the patient in not in the way that is thought the thought the thinking is that if you don't believe in the afterlife then you'll end suffering if you do believe in the afterlife then what you'll you'll have a clean slate and be able to start over that's not really how it works. There's no clean slate. If you're killing yourself, that that you get to take with you that aversion and, and that uh, avoidance, which is not wholesome or healthy, and it's not going to help you when you meet with things in the mo in the death moment, the experience you have in the death moment. Are you going to be able to face that? Not likely. You've got an avoidant personality. 
And so the doctor that helps with that is facilitating and encouraging a real disruption and a real uh, unwholesome act by the patient. Well, it, and is in fact doing it for them. So this, the patient is guilty of wanting it, but the doctor is guilty of facilitating this uh, bad move of, of ending the patient's potential to live as a human being. What my teacher would say when he was alive was the human life is precious. Any moment you have as a human is a moment can do great things. You don't have that reassurance after you die. You don't know where you're going, especially if you end your life or have someone end your life. And so for someone to end that is taking away from you such potential. We were talking about abortion this morning, and I have to take back some of what I said about it not being, or it being perhaps not as big a deal as it's made out to be, because one in one way it is a great deal, a great big deal. Here is a potential human who has such potential for greatness, and you're just taking that away from them. And the odds are that an aborted child is just going to be reborn in the, one of the lower realms. It's so hard to be. Such good luck. And you take that luck away from them. It is a big deal. Until we've crossed the hour, there's one more question in Tier 1. Do you have time to answer? Yeah. Is trying an adequate noting, i.e. trying for happiness, to change experience in some way, etc., are wanting, disliking, etc., better? Yeah, they're better. Trying isn't, I don't think, technically. It, it's, it's minorly problematic. Trying isn't uh, experience. Think of it this way, trying is perception of you doing, of a being doing something, but the actual experience isn't of trying, the experience is of wanting, or the tension that you identify as trying, right? It's usually some stress that arises, or tension, where you feel like you're trying, but you're not actually trying, you just, there's just a feeling of tension or stress that comes from the wanting. Okay, Bhante, that's the end of the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris, for your help, and Rahid, and Ulu, and is Jim there as well? Yes. Okay, thank you, everyone. Have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.